Would you uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. We will read through verse 25. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would use your word to confront us with the God who reveals himself in the pages of scripture. And as we come to this book, we come to God speaking to us. And we thank you for that reality. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple weeks back, the Wall Street Journal ran an article which began as follows. In scarcely a week, the vice president's wife has become a public face of hate. CNN's John King suggests that what Mrs. Pence has done is so grievous that maybe taxpayers shouldn't fund her Secret Service security protection. The ACLU says she's sending a terrible message to students. The Guardian sees in Mrs. Pence a reminder of the vice president's dangerous bigotry. During a Saturday night performance in Las Vegas, Lady Gaga added to the discussion, telling her fans that what Mrs. Pence has done confirms that she and her husband are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. And then a former Washington Post editor and now senior writer for Politico tweeted this, how can this happen in America? What was it that caused so much outrage? What was this terrible thing that Mrs. Pence had done? Well, she plans to teach art part-time at Emanuel Christian School in Northern Virginia. It's a small, private, K-8 through school where Mrs. Pence has taught before. 
But what is so appalling is it adheres to a biblical and a biblically rooted view of human sexuality. That is what was so appalling to so many. So let me ask you, how are we to honor everyone and honor the king in a world which despises the biblical worldview, that decries the biblical worldview? Now, this passage will address that, but it doesn't stop there. It actually pushes harder. Peter calls us to a new lifestyle, honoring everyone, and he even says that we are essentially to be slaves, slaves who endure unjust suffering. What are we to make of passages like this? Passages which seem to, to picture the Christian life as one of just rolling over, of just taking our lumps, of, of always being the one who just turns the other cheek. Is that what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that? Well, specifically this morning, we'll be considering suffering. But the kind of suffering done by other people. Now, those other people might be those in the church, as Matthew addressed a couple weeks ago in Romans 12. But mainly, this passage is looking at those outside of the church and even government and leaders and rulers. It is speaking to us as a corporate people of God, mortared together to Christ and each other, and how we as a people live in a world which is hostile to us. So Peter, last week, he went on to demonstrate that as we are those mortared to Christ and each other, we are also those who are radically distinct from the world. Because everything splits over what you do with Jesus. But the question then is, if we, are, if we are those who believe in Jesus, and the rest of the world is radically separated from us, then that means there's going to be animosity. There's going to be trial and tribulation. Now, it's not that we're to hate the world, but rather we're to live in the world as those who proclaim the excellencies of God's saving work in Christ. But as those totally separate, we will, we will receive attack. We will receive persecution. We will receive suffering. And that is the point which Peter goes on to address in this passage for today. So we'll look at this passage under three, three points. First, we'll be living as free servants in verses 11 through 17. And then servants suffer unjustly in verses 18 through 20. And finally, suffering servants of Christ in 21 through 25. So one more time. Living as free servants, servants suffer unjustly, and suffering servants of Christ. First, living as free servants. Would you look at verses 11 through 17 with me again? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. You'll notice Peter begins this next section by hearkening back to language he opened the letter with, that language of sojourners, of exiles. The point being made is quite clear. This is not our home. So while we live here, we honor everyone. We honor the emperor, but this is not and never will be our home. We will experience a great many joys in life here on earth, but true happiness will never be found here. Furthermore, our separateness from the world means that there will be an endless temptation for us to demortar ourselves from our fellow church community, from the saints, and even from Christ. 
In particular, Peter calls this the passions of the flesh. They're they're waging war against our souls. Now, something about the unknown is always so alluring to us, is it not? He calls it passions of the flesh. But is this not really what was going on in the garden with the first temptation? Well, that that fruit looks awfully good. I mean, it, it looks good to the eye. It looks tasty. There's something about the unknown. It is alluring to us. And Peter warns his first readers that as persecution increases, temptations will seem all the more delightful, you could say. And so we need to be those who are careful that we do not allow those passions of the flesh to override us. Peter calls these first readers to live in such a way that as we abstain from the lust of the flesh, we actually have an evangelistic witness. That those will see, the watching world will see. Our membership booklet, which I just read this week to prepare for this afternoon's class, says that very thing. To live in such a way that the watching world sees it and wonders and asks questions about who it is that we serve, that we live in such a way. That's Peter's point here. Now, it would be a mistake to assume that these passions of the flesh were merely sexual. Well, doubtless, that is a, a large part of what's going on here. But that's not everything. Uh, in fact, I would say for us today in America, our passions of the flesh are much more comfort or control or security. The American dream of a good job, a nice house, a retirement package, and 2.5 kids. Maybe for the gathering, it's 6.5 kids. But <laughs> you understand that the American dream is one of the most pernicious idols of our day. Promising a hope and a home. Promising that will be more than just sojourners. Promising that happiness can really be found here, rooted, if you find the right recipe to make it work. So you see, friends, there's a sense in which it's a good thing to long to provide for your family. There's a good thing to, to long to, to give them a safe environment and to, to raise them in peace. And that, those are all good things. But that's what makes it such a pernicious idol. That's what makes it so deceptive that that good desire becomes an ultimate desire. It's a disordering of our loves. Friends, these things, these desires, Peter says, are waging war against our souls. It's an interesting way to put that. Against our souls, against our very being, who we are. It's not merely physical here, I hope you see. This is against who you are. Now, this idea of disordered loves uh, has been written on very well by James Smith uh, in his little book, You Are What You Love. He talks about this at, at length. But notice, just as we saw last week, there's no neutrality when you come to Christ. When you hear the message of the gospel in Christ, there is always only two responses. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. There is no neutrality. And the same thing is true of living in the world, of the passions of the flesh. There's only two options. You are hardened or softened. So James Smith writes about this. We need to have our hearts constantly recalibrated in our loves to Christ. So he writes this great little story. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, in a thick fog off of the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. 41 sailors lost their lives in the frigid winter waters of the Atlantic. During the cross-examination, it was learned that Captain Johnson navigated with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. 
And this was a standard practice. It was a standard compass used by seafaring men. So it was never calibrated in the year that he'd taken the vessel. Why would you? It was a standard. But it turned out to be the cause of those deaths. So Christian, your heart is like a compass. And Smith writes this. We need regularly to calibrate our hearts, turning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. But Peter says, friends, be weary of the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, apart from this continued corporate recalibrating, or a part of it, rather, is what we're doing here this morning, to gather together as the body, to be members of a local church. You see, if the corporate body of the church fails to be that place where we are recalibrated, then, like those two captains, we will experience many losses along the way. This is why community groups have been such a big push in this series Those are places where we gather corporately, but in smaller groups, to once again recalibrate our lives. Triads, the same way. Wednesday night, the scripture memorization, and Wednesday night, the theology classes, those are all ways where we come together corporately, in groups groups small or large, to recalibrate our hearts, our loves and desires, to learn new passions, new longings. So, That is what he deals with in this first part of the passions of the flesh. But as he he transitions there in verse 13, it says, be subject to every human institution. And verse 14 might shock some of you. He says, you know, that he he talks about this, the governor is the one who punishes evil and praises those who do good. Now, some of you might read that and be like, I don't know what governor he's talking about. Uh, That does not look like our governor. That maybe that's just something for Peter back then. Well, remember, Peter was under the Roman emperor. I mean, he was under an emperor who demanded to be worshipped as a god. So no, friends, Peter was not under some sort of spell. He was acknowledging the fact that all governments are put in place by God and they serve a purpose for God. Now, I translate that phrase there in verse 13, every human creature. Because, you see, Peter's subtle way of reminding them that the emperor may claim to be a god, but he's just a creature. And yet, he's a creature we honor. We, We honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We fear God as supreme, but we honor the emperor, even the emperor who demands to be worshipped as a god. Now, we live in a very politically divided country. It's common for people today to demonize those with different political views than we have. So you could see how this becomes very applicable to us today, because it can be easy for us to slip into a pattern of thought That somehow our party will put forward a guy or a gal that will fix everything. That that somehow there is something to be won in politics. This was the story of the moral majority. And then the backlash of this on on the more democratic side. when The more liberal churches did the same thing. Everybody's seeking to control, to fix things through power. But Peter gives us a completely different picture. He says, honor everyone. See, friends, the kind of behavior that we oftentimes see in the media and in social media and those types of things, the the denouncing and the sharp words, that just simply cannot, must not be named among Christians. That is the application for us today, is it not? 
If we are those united to each other and to Christ, and we honor everyone and love the brotherhood, then friends, there will be and should be in this congregation people with very different political views. That's okay. That's good. We honor the emperor, but we love the brotherhood, which means we can learn to disagree. That's why two weeks ago, Matt covered this very thing, that part of our calling as Christians is to bear up even under sharp disagreements, even under wounding of each other. Love the brotherhood, honor everyone. And even our submission to the government is one of those things where we will probably get vehemently denounced. That's very much what we're seeing with Mrs. Pence, are we not? So that's the first point. We're to live in this way. But then this theme of living as servants of God, Peter transitions into speaking to household servants. And he calls these servants to suffer unjustly in verses 18 through 20. Would you read that with me? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now this addressing of servants is interesting. One commentator notes that what would have been shocking about this passage to the first readers was the fact that Peter said anything to the servants. See, servants were subhuman, really. The fact that he says anything to them would have just blown the first readers away. They wouldn't have known what to do with it. Uh, One commentator says, for society at large, slaves were not full persons. They didn't have full moral responsibility. So it would have only been the masters that the household code would have been written for. But Peter begins his code by speaking to the slaves, acknowledging their full humanity, which, of course, brings us to the doctrine of the imago dei, We are created in the image of God. See, it's interesting. interesting. Those who are denouncing Mrs. Pence and her willingness to work at a school that has a Christian sexual ethic are essentially upset about this. They're saying that's a bigoted view because what it says is that the Christian view is that there's one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. And that's the only place that, that sexual union is to take place. And they're saying that is dehumanizing. Because you're putting limits on people that you shouldn't do. Do you see the logic of of what their, their concern is? They're saying, how dare you have that view? We know that people need to be free to make choices, to choose for themselves. Well, maybe you are here this morning and you are not a Christian. What I mean is you have not come to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps you're here and you might agree with those who are critiquing Ms. Pence that, that perhaps the Christian sexual sexual ethic is, it's bigoted, that it's narrow, that that it is dehumanizing. Well, if that might be you here this morning, I would want to ask you if you've ever read Luke Ferry's little book, A Brief History of Thought. I'd love to read it with you, as a matter of fact. See, Ferry is an atheist philosopher and a professor, but he does a brilliant job of demonstrating how their culture worked and where human rights come from. He writes this, the Greek world was an aristocratic world, one which rests entirely upon the conviction that there exists a natural hierarchy, organs of sight, of plants, of animals, but also of men. Some men are born to command and others to obey. So with this in mind, Ferry acknowledges that human rights, as we think of them today, were unthinkable 
to all other creatures, all other cultures and times. And if that is the case, then the question he poses is, where did our concept of, of human rights come from? Where did we get this modern idea that we all have these deeply endowed human rights? Is that not in the founding documents endowed by our creator? Human rights, freedom, liberty? Well, he goes on to say, as an atheist philosopher, that it was the Christian worldview. It was because Christians believed that all people were created in the image of God that we had human rights and dignity. Ferry writes this, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that there was no hierarchy, that men were created with equal dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. So friends, I would say, there's a deep irony, actually, in those who want to claim that the Christian worldview and sexual ethic are dehumanizing. They are using the Christian worldview as the grounds for human rights and yet denying the worldview that comes with it and the sexual ethic which comes with it. So again, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'd love to meet with you and talk with you or even read through that book together. But to get back to our passage, when Peter here addresses slaves, as we said, the first readers would have been shocked and appalled that he, that he wrote to slaves, that he treated them as full humans, at least those outside of the church. But for us today, we have a different issue we have to deal with. See, on this side of the slave trade, on this side of Jim Crow, on this side of those things, we have to ask a couple different questions. For, for example, why doesn't Peter denounce and renounce all slavery? I mean, Peter and Paul don't ever do it explicitly. Why is that? Well, this is a very in-depth topic. The bibliology for it would be quite long. But here's a couple key points on things we can say. First, it must be said this, that slave trading in American history is not a one-to-one comparison with the ancient practice. Though there was certain elements of overlap, they weren't identical. See, back in those days, there was no bankruptcy law. So if you're an entrepreneurial fellow and you get a business going and it collapses on you, you're ruined. So if you don't have a rich relative to bail you out, you sell yourself into slavery as a bond slave and you work off your debt. So that is one reason why slavery was, it was ingrained in the very idea of business and commerce and, and you might willingly, there was actually some slaves who were doctors and, and others who were teachers and they had such status that they had slaves for themselves. So it wasn't quite the same thing in some instances. Another reason though, and perhaps maybe the most important difference between modern slavery and ancient slavery is this. In the ancient slavery, it, they did not single out a particular ethnic group. There were slaves of every people, color, and nation. It wasn't a hatred of a particular people. And anybody could be a slave. Roman, Jew, Greek, it didn't matter. So I believe that if Peter and Paul were writing this today into into this history, into dealing with the slavery we've seen in this country, this demonic hatred of people, I believe their, their words would have been quite a bit differently. So that's the first thing we have to say about this passage. But there's two other things that I want us to think about is why it is that he does not denounce slavery. First of all is this, is that the gospel is not primarily a social message. The church is not primarily an entity that exists to change the world. Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. 
The gospel has implications for how we live in the world. And individual Christians and groups of Christians are often called to engage in cultural transformation projects. Wilberforce is the premier example, one who fought against slavery and helped to bring about the abolition movement in England. But that's not the primary calling of the church. Remember, Peter had started the letter, and then again this section with these words, sojourners, exiles. Friends, this is not and never will be our home. We need to be reminded of that often. In fact, there's this strange phrase, you probably saw it in verse 19 and 20, this is a grace, this is a gracious thing, Uh, this is commendable, some translations read. Uh, It's a unique kind of use of the word grace, but we see the same usage, I'd argue for, in Luke 6, 32 through 34. Jesus actually says it three times. If you love those who love you, what grace, what credit is it to you? He, I would say, is speaking about the reward. What is the reward? This is a, a, a rewarding issue for you. Tom Schreiner notes this. He says, when Peter says it is a grace for someone to endure suffering because of their relationship with God, his point was that those who suffer in such a way will receive a reward from God, and that reward in this context is their eschatological inheritance, their, their final salvation, as it were. So, when you endure unjust suffering, when you bear up with patience, when you respond with honor to the emperor and love towards the brothers, that, friends, is a demonstration that you are truly a Christian and your final reward will be heaven. But that brings up the question, what what do you think of when we think of heaven? I mean, what exactly, if we are to be those who live for heaven, who live for then in the here and now, what heaven are we living for exactly? In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks the same question. Let me think, do you think of heaven as a place where all of your best friends and family throughout time are? Do you think of it as a place where sickness is gone? Where there's no need for healing because there's nothing but happiness. There's no sorrow, no suffering, no shame. There's never lack. There's never want. There's always rejoicing, always abundance. Is that what you think of when you think of heaven? Well, Piper pushes and essentially says, friends, if those are the first things you think of when you think of heaven, you may not be a Christian at all because heaven is about Jesus. See, heaven is where Christians finally have their faith in Christ turned to sight. Heaven is where the ultimate joy and reward gained is Christ himself. Now you see why those passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. On hard days, we think of heaven as a nice relief from our suffering instead of seeing it as the king that we finally get to be with. So church, as a community, we must pray for ways to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. We must long for godly reforms in this broken world. But we're living for the king. Or maybe I should ask it a different way. If you are someone who is not passionately pursuing Jesus now, are you going to enjoy heaven at all when heaven is Christ? So Peter calls his readers to something far more difficult than just to bear up under persecution and suffering. He calls them to live now for them, regardless of what you suffer now, regardless of how unjust it is now.
Because this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. Now, there's a second reason why Peter does not denounce slavery, and it's the more shocking of the two, rather. He actually says in verse 18, by singling out the servants and calling them to bear up under unjust suffering, then in verses 20 and 21, he switches back to the y'all, to that Greek southern plural, right? That you all need to live this way. In other words, Peter uses the suffering slaves as the prime example of what it looks like to be a Christian. We're free, he says, but don't let your freedom be a cause for evil. Rather, you're slaves, you're servants of Jesus. Isn't that how Paul opens most of his letters? But not only are Christians to live in such a way that they honor the egomaniac emperor, but we're also to live in such a way that when we're abused and when we suffer unjustly, we respond with respect and continued honor. Schreiner says this, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance which they were called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. Listen to those words again. Suffering is God's appointed means for us to receive the inheritance which he has laid up for us in heaven. See, I know we live in the first world, and we even make jokes about, oh, it's a first world problem. Do we not? But for Peter's first readers, suffering was unavoidable. That's why this subject runs the whole Bible. It starts in Genesis 3 with the fall and the curse, and it runs the whole Bible. That's why there are songs of lament in the Psalms. That's why the prophets are weeping so often. We have a whole book of lamentations. That's why Jesus was called a man of sorrows. And it will continue until in the apocalypse the saints say, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Suffering will continue. So as Christians, we need to think about living this way, that it is God's appointed means. It's not something that we seek to avoid. Now, don't get me wrong. If you can avoid suffering, sure. But not all suffering can be avoided. And so we trust God through it and grow through it. For Peter, suffering is a part of life, never an excuse for unrighteousness. In fact, Peter is going to carry the same theme that he uses of slaves as an exemplar of what it is to be Christians into wives in chapter 3. It seems likely that what happened was is that the wives were Christians and their husbands were not, which meant in that culture the husbands could run around. And Peter says to these women that they, instead of responding with just wrath, instead of responding in anger towards their husbands' grotesque lives and behavior, instead of abandoning the marriage, Peter says that these wives should live with such respect, with such pure conduct towards their husbands, that they may win their husbands without a word. See, Peter's exhortations to slaves and to wives are appalling to our modern sensibilities. Look at the divorce rate among Christians, and it shows you that it is true. The idea of not standing up for our rights, the idea of not squeezing every last bit of justice and revenge against those who have wronged us just seems absurd. That's why our entire media is, is feeds off of this type of thing, of getting back the entire debacle that is Twitter. Is that, and yes, I use it too, but it's, it's, such, a, it's such an evil thing that it can be used for, if that's all it's used for, is response and attack and one-upmanship and so-called justice. But there's no way to get around Peter's argument here. Christians, you are like a slave. 
But when you are beaten, make sure you're beat because you did something good, not because you did something bad and deserved it. That's how blunt he's being. Christian, you're like a wife with an abusive husband who doesn't love you and doesn't care for you. You don't flee. You win him with love and patience. That's what Peter is calling Christians to do, which is exactly why he's going to call us. He's going to go so far as to say that we Christians actually take on the mantle of the suffering servant. And our last point, suffering servants of Christ, verse 21 through 25 with me. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Earlier in the service, we read from Isaiah 41. It's one of the four servant songs. And you'll notice it's a corporate servant song. I don't know if you heard the language, but it's corporate. It's a stunning thing. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, you are my servant. Now, now many have wrestled with this. Well, why is, I mean, that servant song is clearly corporate. But when you get to 53, the suffering servant, it, it certainly seems to be singular there. But this is why even Jews today and down through the years, they still believe that Isaiah 53 is corporate. That that is the Jewish people are the suffering servant, that they are continuing in suffering But here, as a matter of fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where Isaiah 53 is specifically connected to the suffering of Christ. Elsewhere, they're used it to connect it to Christ. But this is specifically tying it to his passion, to his cross work. So Peter demonstrates that all the servant songs are driving us to Christ and driving us to his work of redemption. But then Peter links our suffering to Christ's suffering because he is an example So we are those united to Christ as a part of his body who suffer unjustly just as he did. This is why verse 12 opened with that weird phrase to us, keep your live honorably before the Gentiles. Well, he's writing to both a Jewish and Gentile church, but Peter envisions his church as the suffering servant Israel, the body of Christ receiving the persecution that also he received and the rest of the world is the Gentiles who are persecuting. So Peter sees those united to Christ as this fulfillment, you could say, of the corporate elements of the servant song. And he actually is going to repeat this again and again. You could say the central theme of 1 Peter is the suffering unjustly. And so much so that in chapter 4, he even takes it so far as to say, when people speak evil against you, bear it graciously. So Peter has grounded this whole argument of being those who suffer unjust suffering, but who do so and live honorably and lovingly. He grounds it in this, for to you all have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, Karen Jobes in her excellent commentary notes that example is really too weak of a word. See, Jesus' suffering is the paradigm, she writes, 
by which Christians write large letters of the gospel in their lives. The Christians are to live as servants of God. See, that, that word used for example is actually one that, it was pictures of school children with like really large letters like you'd have in pre-kindergarten where they're tracing the letters with their finger. It's a tracing out. So she writes, the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did. Jesus Christ left us with a pattern over which we are to trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. One cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off into any other direction. His footsteps lead to the cross and through the grave and then onward to glory. The church, how are we tracing out Jesus' footsteps? How are we tracing out his example? I, I would submit to you, if we are not regularly thinking corporately in big groups and little groups, praying through the issues of the day, the issues of our city, when persecution lands on these shores, we will not be as ready as we should be. We need to be those who are coming back, tracing out his life and his footsteps. And praise God that he also gives us examples of this in real life. Perhaps the most potent example I know of, particularly in recent history, is Wang Yi. And over 100 of his members arrested in China, a pastor. He now faces up to 15 years in prison. Foreseeing his impending arrest, he wrote this letter. Here's a few excerpts from it. I commend the whole thing to you. He says, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. Temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again towards him. For this reason, I joyfully am willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked and unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior, Jesus Christ, also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. Oh, friends, go read Wang Yi's letter. It will set you on your heels and help you to realize just how much more we need to be those tracing the footprints of Jesus, which is precisely what Peter is saying here, that we are those called to walk in his footsteps. This is why Peter says, bear your cross. Jesus himself, if I suffer, you're going to suffer. It should never surprise us. It should challenge us to encourage each other to be even more united to us as living stones and to Christ, our cornerstone. So friends, we opened this sermon by asking, how are we as Christians supposed to honor the emperor in a world which sees more and more the biblical worldview as something which must be decried and denounced and derided? Well, Pastor Yi and his congregation have given us a great example. 
But as Peter says, we're to live in such a way that even our protest against the God-denying, God-dishonoring laws is done honorably. So now we as the watching world get to watch Pastor Yi and his church members, and we get to see their good deeds, and we pray that by God's grace, many will come to glorify him on the day of visitation. This new lifestyle to which we are called, friends, the life of following Jesus at whatever the cost, it begins in the community of the church. It grows as we grow as living stones, as God is building us together into that spiritual house. And it is strengthened by coming back again and again to the reality that Peter gives us here. That it is by his wounds we are healed. That the more we see our suffering as flowing from the fact that we are united to him and that we are tracing out his pattern of suffering, then the more we will not revile when we are reviled and the more we will not threaten when we are threatened. But instead, we will see this as the aim through which God intends to bring us into our eternal reward. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for suffering. We thank you for the suffering of your Son, which is our supreme example who brings us back to this reality again and again, that we have access to you because of what he suffered for us. Lord, that we are able to honor because he honored and he has freed us and forgiven us for our reviling. Lord, as a church, would you knit us and bind us and mortar us together so that we would be a people who more and more rejoice in all seasons of life and even of those of suffering. And we pray for Pastor Yi and for his congregation and the many around the world who are suffering. We thank you for their example. And Holy Spirit, would you strengthen them afresh for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. We transition now to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. So the table is open to all who have repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism. Uh, we can start by taking the elements, start in the back rows, coming forward, and you can take the elements back to your seat, and I'll come up at the end and I'll lead us to partake corporately.